Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the No Baton Needed podcast, the podcast being recorded by the Coral Project. I'd like to welcome you all to what we hope to be the first of a wonderful series of episodes exploring the uh, choral community and the larger music community in the Bay Area and uh, how we are expressing ourselves artistically today. Um, our first guest is the artistic director of the Choral Project in San Jose, uh, Daniel Hughes, and I'd like to welcome Daniel Hughes to the podcast today. Daniel? Hello, everybody. Good morning. Hi. How are you feeling today? Good. Thank you. How are you? Uh, not too bad. Uh, you know, we're all stuck at home, so uh, <laughs> it's a good time to record things, right? For sure. Yeah. Uh, so how have you... You are an, a musician, an artist. Um, how have you been expressing yourself lately, musically and artistically? Uh, it's it's been a challenge when you're so used to making music with a community to suddenly find yourself kind of as a recluse, a forced seclusion. So I've been uh, playing piano a lot, um, which is kind of nice because when I'm in the middle of the sort of hustle and bustle of making music normally as a conductor, I um, don't have as much time to devote to just trying to work on piano technique, which I'm first and foremost a pianist. Um, and I've also been compo composing quite a bit. Um, my compositional output has really gone up, surprisingly, um, which is a surreal sort of state of being because I'm writing music that I have no idea when it will be performed if at all. But there's still a, a huge output, which is kind of neat. What sort of uh, medium have you been composing for? Like, I've, I know you've been posting some uh, piano pieces on, on Facebook. Uh, it's piano, instrumental, there's a piece for a violin and in piano and a piece for clarinet and piano that I'm in the process of trying to get recorded and then uh, a lot of choral music. And then one piece that I wrote for solo piano um, about two months ago that I'm trying to orchestrate f for band. Mm. Um, a colleague said, this would sound really good in a wind ensemble. So, And that's a new forum for me. I've never scored for wind ensemble or band. So I'm learning a lot about the parameters of that. That's exciting. Um, I'd like to take a step back a little bit and talk about uh, your history, if that's all right. Sure. Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about how we got from, you know, I don't know, I'm going to quote Millie here. You're born and then what happened? Um, <laughs> like what, uh, what led you down the path of, uh, of music, I guess? I was really fortunate. I am really fortunate. Um, my mother is sort of the one who not only passed on the gene, the artistic gene, to all four of the kids. Um, my, my dad was a good visual artist, but all the performing arts um, kind of runs through a line on my mother's side. Her parents were, um, her, her mother was a singer and a pianist, and her father was a cellist. Uh, but in Chile, in Santiago, Chile. But um, they had other jobs in addition to that in Chile. And they, the, my grandfather was actually the uh, business manager for the Center for the Performing Arts in Santiago. And so he rubbed shoulders with all of these very world-famous musicians that would all have dinner over at their house. And my mom has this autograph book that she's passed on to me. So you see in the autograph book, Herbert von Kurian, and Pieter Gorski and Walter Gieseking and Yasha Heifetz, all these legendary people that my mother got to meet. It skipped a generation. My mom didn't get the 
performing gene, but it popped over to me, my twin brother, my older brother, and my sister. And when I was four, um, I had a terrible case of strep throat. And I'm going to date myself now because <laughs> you'll hear in a moment. Um, my parents had a waterbed. <laughs> so <laughs> if any of the kids were not feeling well, they got to sleep in the waterbed because you could regulate the temperature of the water. So if they had the chills, you could turn it up. So I was in the waterbed and the stereo wasn't, it was even a hi-fi, it wasn't even a stereo. In there in the um, master bedroom, my mom put put on some Beethoven and uh, it was piano music and I totally perked up. It didn't relax me like she thought it was going to and I was so into it and I said, I really want to learn how to do this. So that's how I actually got into music as I actually asked for piano lessons and I just stuck with it. And I thought I was going to be a concert pianist all the way through the end of high school. I didn't have a great choral experience in high school because I was a victim of the ravages of Proposition 13 in the state of California. So it wasn't until I got to college at San Jose State under Charlene Archibek that I really had an amazing experience. And I knew immediately that first chord that was sung when her hand came down, oh my gosh, this is what I need to be doing. And the rest is history. That's a powerful experience. So you said that, that you started, that this was at SJSU. Uh, so you were a college student at the time. And did, did, did you switch your focus at that time to, to choral directing? I did, um, although I did it in a weird way. <laughs> I don't do anything normally. Um, I'm, I am the definition of an outlier. I, uh, um, I, I was declared a piano major, and I switched halfway through my degree study to voice. I got to study with the chair of the voice department at that time, Gene Garson, who's one of the greatest minds that had ever lived. And I, I wasn't, I'm not the best singer, and I would definitely back then had a lot of vocal problems. But I very pragmatically uh, spoke to her and said, look, I don't have any designs to be the next tenor at the Met Opera stage, but I know I want to work with singers. And I need help in order to do that. I need to understand the technique more, and I don't trust anyone more than you do, more than you. And um, with that, she took me into her studio and taught me um, with a slightly different set of information as she was teaching me, knowing what it was that I was going to end up doing with all of this. So I actually did kind of change my focus. But you, and then I did my master's in conducting because you can't actually do an undergrad in conducting. You have to do your undergrad in an instrument. Mm -hmm. So, But that was sort of the, the turning point there, my opportunity to work with Gene. Was the master's also at SGSU? Yes. Okay, cool. So once you graduated, uh, did you find yourself working with a, a choir or what happened? Well, so I actually formed the Choral Project before I had finished my undergrad because oh, I, I am an impatient person. And um, I thought about it. I was Charlene's assistant conductor for a few years. And that's it's wonderful to be an assistant conductor. But at a, at a college level, it can actually be kind of frustrating because there's only so much podi podium time that you can get. And uh, it's, you know, she needs to take over and run her pieces in part of the rehearsal. So she's very much just do it this way because that's the best way to do it. And I didn't have an opportunity to really explore and try to stretch my wings and see what happens if I flap like this as opposed to like that. Uh, so I got to the point where I thought, you know what? I'm not sure I need to wait to get a master's degree and then to apply for a posting at 
someplace in Podunk, USA, why don't I just make my own choir? I know a lot of singers that would like to sing with me that have said so. So I went and I cast a net out and lo and behold, we ended up having a choir. There was a lot of attrition the first year. So between September and January, about a third of the group had changed. And I kind of knew that was going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, two, two thirds of them stuck and we still have some founding members in the group today. So did the early years of the choir bring uh, any big lessons for you? Like, what, what did you learn? Well, it's, sometimes I can be a slow learner. <laughs> uh, I think one of the things that I really learned is um, the thing that's keeping everybody in their chairs is a love of wanting to make music. And I was very hyper-driven when I was young, really trying to prove myself, and it made me too intense in the music-making process. Um, and that would always, you know, was, there was always a detriment when I was, well, it's got to be perfect kind of a thing. And when I just gave it a lot of room to breathe and just remembered that these people are only here because they, they want what you want. They want to produce a beautiful sound. It became easier to sort of create that kind of effect in the craft. Hmm. Can you talk about what the music scene was like back then? Like, was it significantly different as far as like the number of choirs that were around, you know, the opportunities that people had to perform? It, it's actually about the same, um, hmm. the, the number of choirs. The Bay Area um, actually has per square mile, of course America did a study on this, per square mile, there are more choirs in the Bay Area than there are anywhere else in the world. Hmm. And there's actually a Bay Area choral directory that you can buy that looks like an old-fashioned phone book. <laughs> it's just lists and lists and lists. I mean, some of the choirs, there's actually an Ethel Merman choir in San Francisco where everybody just melts their guts out on the risers like Ethel Merman. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're looking for a particular kind of choir, the Bay Area is going to have it. And so the, the scene chorally hasn't changed very much. Uh, some of what has changed, um, theater seems to have taken the, the biggest punch um, you know, we had American Musical Theater of San Jose, which was the the premier theater house. And now that uh, company's gone, they they just have a sort of a, a warehouse for traveling shows called Broadway San Jose, where touring companies will come through. And then the San Jose Rep, which was a spectacular theater group, also went under. They were really str both struggling artistically. And so um, that that changed the landscape quite a bit, um, our, you know, and terms of the ripple effect the ballet that was another one that we lost but but oddly enough community choirs are still going really strongly in in the south bay which is great yeah well i'm glad you talked about theater uh you've done a bit of work recently with uh, uh vocal directing and music directing and musical theater as well um how, how did you do you feel like it was a natural prog progression to go from uh like choral work to to theater work like how recent did that happen? It actually, I did theater before I got excited about choir. So mm -hmm. I was in theater in high school. I went up, I did, I played Sir Evelyn Oakley in Anything Goes and won a Bay Area theater award for high school students nice. and kind of got the bug and played Marcellus Washburn and Music Man in my senior year. Uh, so I've always had a strong affinity for theater. So it's, it's my doing, vo I did vocal direction for, a show with South Bay Music Theater, and I've done a lot of vocal direction for shows with um, San Jose Children's Musical Theater. But I w have been assistant music director, I was assistant music director for 
half a dozen shows at American Musical Theater San Jose when it was still going on. So that's a whole, it's like a whole superhero persona, you know, secret identity kind of thing that a lot of people don't necessarily know that is in there in me. But yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would do it more if I had the time. From, uh, from the choral work, like in terms of how you have to interact with the, the people under your supervision. I think that uh, a big difference between the two is um, the way people learn music in musical theater the, is, is a little bit different. You have the literacy is slightly different. And um, some of that, for, for people who are in theater who are very practiced in that craft and have been doing it for a long time, that music is sort of conceived and scored differently than choral music is. Choral music can explore a lot of extended vocal techniques and whatnot, where um, theater, for example, you don't have a ton of polyph- polyphony in theater. It's, a lot of it is you know, singing chords and harmonies together, unless you're doing anything by Sondheim, and that's always sort of, <laughs> yeah, which... Yeah, all bets are off. So, and it's, you know, and Sondheim is my favorite musical theater composer. So it's, you know, he's out there on the edge and really straddles, I think, the almost the classical contemporary right on the edge of musical theater. But other other musicals are conceived differently in terms of the way the ensemble interacts. So then the vocal, the vocal production is different. Um, and then because it's all coming out of a plot, a script, um, everything's integrated to characterization um, rather than choral music, which um, doesn't have a script, even though I, I think performers on stage when they're singing in a choir also need to be thinking of the actor in themselves as well. Mm-hmm. But the sensibilities where they begin are different from each other. Yeah. Do you have a, a dream show that you'd like to work on that you haven't yet? Do I have a dream show? It, that's always such a hard question to ask because I like so many. Uh, you can have multiple dreams. I got to I I got to do a Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder with um, the San Jose Children's Musical Theater. I would love to do that with an adult company, mm-hmm. um, sometime, and um, uh, a little night music is anything by Sondheim. Pretty much yeah. anything by Sondheim, I, I would just jump at the opportunity. It's it's, yeah. it's such a joy. I mean, a little night music in particular, like. I read that "Send in the Clowns" was apparently just sort of sort of a throwaway song. It wasn't really meant to be the standout song from the show. It was written for, you know, someone with a limited vocal range and limited lung capacity. You know, all of the s- phrases are short, but it just sort of it, it left out. You know, and that's I don't know. It's a powerful show. It's great. Yeah. Uh, do you have any roles that you would like to play? Like, uh... Uh, yes, <laughs> I would like to play Tommy Nostradamus in something rotten so i need to work on my tap dancing (laughs) yeah all right uh i'd like to talk a little bit about um you've mentioned your brother a couple times in rehearsal like you have a twin brother is that right yes i have two brothers i have a half brother who's seven years older and then i have a twin brother and identical twin brother or monozygotic twin brother Mm -hmm. who's a a minute older than me Mm mm-hmm yeah, and he's also musically inclined. Is that right? He is. We, as kids, he w- he played trumpet quite well when we were kids, he, and that sort of seemed like a track that he was going to be on. But he ended up veering to the left and got really into drums. So he taught himself how to play the drums by learning how to duplicate what mostly Phil Collins was doing. He would wow. sit at the drum set. He he saved his money. He had a you know a job. Saved his money, bought 
a used drum kit, and he would sit there at the stool, and he would put his headphones on, and he would hear a pattern, and then pause, and then try to duplicate it, and then play it back, and try to duplicate it, and he's a heck of a drummer now. It's mm-hmm. And it, I love working with him, because uh, it must be the twin thing. I have very little explanation I need to do, and he just sort of gets what needs to happen. You have the mind meld. Yeah. It, there was actually an experience we had where I was doing an outreach show for American Musical Theater of San Jose, and the preview of the show was for all of the donors. We actually had this very formal event, and the drummer that we had hired just decided to bail and not show up and didn't answer his phone. It was terrifying. So I called my brother, Mark, and he packed up his gear from Pleasanton. We were able to hold off the, the curtain f- for 30 minutes because there was sort of a whole wine and cheese kind of thing, so the, the donors were happy. <laughs> and Wait, this was the day of the show? Yeah, the day oh, of the preview. God. The preview, And okay. my brother comes in, sets his drum set up, and, and I'm rapidly going through the score, literally explaining it like this. So, okay, right here, he's right here, and then you're going to, it's like, okay, and then right down, and I, he got it all. He just, it was spectacular. <laughs> I'm like, my yeah. gosh, Mark, you're amazing. Uh, his name's Mark then? Mark. Okay, cool. Yeah, sorry. I should ask that. That's totally fine. <laughs> All right. Uh, so he's he's still around. Like, you, you still uh, hang out and interact. He moved to Oregon um, two summers ago. Um, he lives in Bend now. So I haven't... I, I've visited him once, and I would I was going to go this summer to visit him but with COVID. But, so I kind of right. miss him. It's, it, but, you know, it's... Yeah, he's, he's my buddy. Mm-hmm. We didn't like each other very much as twins when we were growing up, but after I moved out, we became much, much closer. Yeah, I'm going to take a hard left turn. Uh, <laughs> talk a little bit about um, the the choir today, you know, the Choral Project. Um, you've been fairly adventurous with your programming, you know, uh, in terms of like how uh, experimental and modern the pieces that you've assigned to the Choral Project have been. Um, can you talk a little bit of like, what's your overall philosophy as far as deciding how to program, uh, the concerts for the, for the choir, like what sort of, uh, feel you're going for and what sort of style? So this is where my theater experience comes into play because mm-hmm. when I'm programming a show, I'm imagining the show with a theatrical kind of arc that the, the story, the story I want to tell, because this concert is about blah whatever it might be and then i try to create an arc that most effectively tells the story from front to end so when the audience gets to the end they they're changed they've gone on a journey a real sort of emotional journey as opposed to programming a concert where you feel like you're looking at paintings in a gallery or everything's a vignette i like more interconnectivity from piece to piece and um so that it, it creates an opportunity for me to do something where I might juxtapose a piece by Palestrina on the heels of something from South Africa mm-hmm. because the subject matter is connected. The, the, the tissue and fibers of what those pieces are all about are related to each other. So from the core of what the emotion is about those pieces, it's easy to go from one to another, even though these pieces were you know, written in totally different centuries, thousands of miles from each other. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that the, the thought is the same. You know, it's a feeling that was shared by both composers. Yeah, and everything can evolve. It, it, so when I'm 
you know, putting a piece after a piece or putting in a, trying to shuffle things around. I'm looking for um, the evolution of the energy and how, how is the energy going to flow from the concert from one to one, a piece to a piece to a piece. I don't want anything jarring. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you slip in that experimental piece that has some extended vocal techniques, there should be a, a sense of that was a logical, the next logical thing to happen in the program for where we are psychologically and emotionally right now in the concert. Mm-hmm. Have you come across any uh, pairings that surprised you with like how well they work together? Uh, yes. Well, it's it's the example I gave. I actually, we did one by one from The Lion King and went from one mm-hmm. by one into Sicu Cervus by Palestrina. And it, it worked surprisingly well. Um, I'm sure there are others that are not coming to mind. Um, this is what happens sometimes when my brain just goes blank. That's um, fine. Yeah. So uh, moving forward, are there any um, composers that have caught your eye or ear, I suppose, that you really want to work into a show? Yes. So one of my favorite composers is Richard Strauss, who's for the for a person who might not know him as a household name. Some people confuse him with the Strauss Waltz family, you know, the ones that wrote the Blue Danube and things like that. But Richard Strauss mm-hmm. isn't related at all. He's a post romantic composer, you know, just right after Mahler, early twentieth century, and I adore his music. His orchestral music's incredible, and he's written a piece called Die Nacht, and it's for a 16-part chorus, and it's really hard. Stunningly gorgeous, <laughs> but really hard. It, it's because he really expects, you know, four-part soprano, four-part alto, four-part tenor, four-part bass, and each one of those four parts needs to sing, mm-hmm. really sing. There's a whole line for the basses, the slow line that starts on a, a low D, like way down here, and it goes all the way up to an E flat above middle C, it just goes, 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 goes. It requires this beautiful, even kind of tone and register shift. He 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 writes for the voices as if they were an orchestra. It's just a dream piece. I would love to do that piece. We just haven't found the right program and the right time to to do that. So that's that's one of several. The the nice thing about choral music, and it's also the curse of choral music, is there is no possible way for you to ever do every single piece that's written. There's just mm-hmm. so much repertoire. If you add up all of the choral music that's ever been written and you add up all the instrumental music that's ever been written, the instrumental music just doesn't even come close to just how much choral music there is out there. Hmm. So I just I resign myself to the fact that I will die still wanting to eat <laughs> something, still wanting to do that one piece. And, and you know, once you resign yourself to that, it's you can be okay with sort of your choral mortality. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of which, I know that we were set to perform the uh, Considering Matthew Shepard, uh, that piece this year. Um, can you talk a little bit about the process for deciding to do that piece? When I heard that piece performed, um, the, the, de- the debut at the American Choral Directors Association convention in Pasadena a few years ago, I knew immediately I needed to do this composition. It's it's so beautifully conceived. The subject matter is um, it's a heartbreaking thing to look at, but it's it's so wonderfully rendered in the music that it gets you to the end, and you feel closer to the people around you than 
you did at the beginning, like this journey through such heartache and then coming out, you feel healed. You feel like there's hope. You feel like there's possibility. So I knew I wanted to do that. It was just trying to find the right moment to do it. So I was actually going to do it um, the very following year. But I had heard through the grapevine that Jeffrey Benson, Dr. Jeffrey Benson at San Jose State, also wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it and I said, you know, rather than cut it cut in line and then have him have to do it, why don't I just call him and see if we can do it together? Mm-hmm. So we had a conversation about it and he was very excited about the opportunity. So I slated um, and it, it was just a wonderful opportunity for the Coral Project because there was another piece I wanted to do, which I did instead, which was The Little Match Girl Passion by David Lang, mm-hmm. which won the Pulitzer Prize. So I did that instead and then waited one more year to do um, Considering Matthew Shepard with San Jose State. And so collaboratively, the process leading up to how far we got, which was just about to start rehearsing the piece, was, um, you can hear there's a, my mic is sensitive, collaboratively, um, uh, we got all the way up to the point of just starting to rehearse the piece, um, and we had some wonderful concepts for how it was going to be staged, and um, what some of the visual visual concepts were going to be like with the piece, and it's 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 breathtaking, and mm-hmm. it's I'm looking forward to when things resume so that the Coral Project can actually do it because it's it's a life changing composition. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm looking forward to it as well. <laughs> um. Do you remember, I mean, getting into the subject matter of the piece, do you remember, like, how, where were you when you heard about Matthew Shepard? Like, how did that affect you? I don't remember where I was when I heard about Matthew Shepard, but I, when I heard about it, I went to a dual state of heartache and anger. Um, I'm privileged that I've grown up in the Bay Area and I was able to come out in a community that's, it's, there's safety. It's much safer. I mean, it's not 100% safe, but it's vastly safer than it is in Wyoming, where Matthew Shepard was, where there's still a lot of fear and ignorance around being who you are if you don't fit into the cookie cutter mold. And so I, I, and I, I kind of walked around sort of in a dazed state of being really angry with clenched fist and then just my heart weeping at the same time. Mm-hmm. And nobody should die the way that he did. Nobody should die alone the way that he did. And people should be allowed to be who they are and love who they are without any kind of fear around that. Yeah. What's your experience been as, as a gay man in the, in the coral world in the Bay area? I actually have conducted uh, the. I was I conducted the Silicon Valley Gamers Chorus for, for five years, um, in the early two thousands, and I conducted the Full Spectrum Chorus, which was the lesbian and gay choir of Santa Cruz for three mm-hmm. years. So I have a little bit of um, experience working with the LGBTQ choral community. It's it's different. Well, it's it's hard to compare to the Choral Project because the Choral Project is also different than just choirs in general in terms of how things are conceived and the way we do things. And I'm the Coral Project's really blessed to have such an amazing um, group of people, a talented people and kind people in their ranks. Uh, the um, When you're working with the LGBTQ community in choirs, the subject matter 
as different because the identity of the choristers drives a lot of the programming and you have an opportunity to do um, regular choral gems you know sort of beautiful jewels um, but at the core of the program there's still the identity of this choirs made up of these people who are showing their solidarity by singing together this mm -hmm. is this community performing um, music and 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 it may seem there's a little bit of numbness around that I think in the Bay Area because now it's the it's much more acceptable to be out and open and hold hands with your significant other if you're in a same-sex relationship and but um, in you know, the Heartland Gay Men's Chorus, which is in Kansas, that's it, a very different story out there. So the political and community aspects, the solidarity that's there is still very palpable for the individuals that are looking for a safe place to be and, and find a way to express who they are safely. So when they're standing there, I can't, you know, I'm totally out to everybody except when I'm on the risers. I can, I mean, I'm not out to anybody except when I'm on the risers. I can be out. Yeah. Do, do you feel that it's important for uh, like gay and queer choruses in the in the um, in the Bay Area to um, be in community with like queer choruses elsewhere in the country, just sort of to, to show solidarity? Yes, um, there, there's a huge festival that happens every four years that the Gay and Lesbian Alliance, the Gala Choruses, uh, puts on where it, it's a. Um, LGBTQ choirs and LGBTQ friendly choirs singing for each other. The the it's an in, it's a wonderful experience because the the choral animal, in terms of the classical music world, for example, the a chorister is sort of the the black sheep, slightly awkward child in terms of the the highbrow classical world, which is funny because there's everybody's connected to a choir in some way or another but there's this interesting sort of like yes we we're we're a chamber orchestra that specializes in early music and oh and here's the choir that's going to sing with us <laughs> i mean it's mm -hmm. this unusual little attitude so to be a choral nerd it's 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 a very very specific kind of person that i totally love mm -hmm. so then when Choral nerds get a chance to sing for each other. That's always a magical thing. But now you've added this other element onto it where the people that are there are also part of the LGBTQ community and singing for each other, showing their solidarity. And for the Choral Project has actually participated in this festival. And it was wonderful to be there as a chorus where, I mean, we, ha we have LGBTQ people in the choir, but we are not an LGBTQ chorus. That isn't at the core of our identity. So it's neat mm -hmm. to be a supporting chorus at this festival saying, hey, we think you're all just phenomenal and we love to be here too. So it's it's just thrilling. I love the energy of the gala choruses. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, we decided that uh, this podcast would be called No Baton Needed, um, in part because we've noticed that you often don't conduct with a baton, in particular when you're conducting the choir. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why that is? Well, I... To, the generally speaking, you you want to use a baton when you're working with instruments, but not always. If it's if the tempo is slow and lyric, you can conduct without the baton. But uh, the baton was 
sort of created so that people who are further away from the conductor can still see some clarity with the, the white of the baton going up and down. Mm. Um, if the music requires a lot of clear articulation, like something really rhythmic, something kind of dry, a baton is helpful as well. But uh, other than that, you don't need it. And typically choral directors don't use a baton unless they're doing something with instruments. And typically orchestral directors will use a baton unless they're doing a, a very lyric slow movement in a symphony or something like that. You'll sometimes see them put the baton down. Um, so it's 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 funny. I haven't used a baton very much recently, but there were there was there were seasons where I actually conducted everything with the baton. Um, mm -hmm. So I just kind of go through my own wave, my my own phase of that. But uh, the no baton needed. It's you technically you don't need to conduct anything with a baton. There are orchestral directors that conduct um, exclusively without baton. You just have to have clear gestures. I see. So it's evident you've had a pretty good run with the Coral Project so far. Um, where do you see yourself in 10 years, you know, looking forward? That is a really good question. Um, because I'm doing what I already love. I, I feel like I already have the dream job. <laughs> I, would, I would say that in 10 years, what I would love to see changed is that um, I'm able to do it as a full-time job and support myself completely with it. Mm. Um, as m most musicians around the country, I, I pick up a lot of other gigs, which I love doing in order to sort of fill up the budget and make it meet. But it would be, it would be a dream to be able to have the Coral Project just be, this is your full-time job and that's all I do and just devote all of my brain power to that. Imagining. Just to focus on it. Yeah. And just having that bandwidth to just imagine the craziest, most fantastic types of productions possible. Mm -hmm. So along those lines, where do you see the Coral Project in 10 years? Like how will it be different? Supposing that we can meet physically. By the yeah, way. <laughs> I think that that's a really interesting question. It's because I'm not even sure what the Coral Project is going to be like once we come out of the shelter in place. Mm -hmm. It's I, I think the world is really going to be feel quite different when this is finished. So I, I do think that there's going to be an ethos that colors everything on the planet when we're all able to come back and be together as a community. And, and I'm not sure exactly how that's going to feel. So I, I don't exactly know how to answer that question. I think it's going to be um, special. I think it's going to be magical. I think it's going to be a little sad at the same time too. And I think that there's going to be a sense of value placed on things that were originally taken for granted. Hmm. So I wanted to um, finish up with uh, uh, some short questions, if that's all right. Um, just like little um, yes or no. All the James Lipton. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I don't have the beard for it, unfortunately, but we'll try anyway. Um, Mozart or Haydn? Oh, gosh, that's mean. It, uh, Haydn. Oh, I wouldn't have picked that. Um, Haydn, uh, Haydn, actually, Haydn is actually more adventurous because he, he, he had a secure job working for a court, so he didn't have to depend on commissions. So some of his stuff is much more exploratory than Mozart is. Um, 
Unfortunately, I think the things that are most popular by Haydn in the general community are the least interesting things that he's written. So, but it's, yeah, so Haydn, sorry. You like the playful pieces, surprise symphony, that sort of thing? Yeah, see, and that's, I don't even think that's an interesting thing. I think that some of his other stuff, the Lord Nelson Mass, the, the Bear Symphony, they're, yeah. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Dogs or cats? Both. Uh, cake or pie? Pie. Uh, Wilson asked this one. Uh, bath or shower? Oh, well, I don't have a bathtub, <laughs> so it's shower. I do like a, a good bath, but if in terms of regularity, shower. All right. Um, do you prefer the toilet paper to go over or under the roll? Oh, well, it's I do it the proper way, the way that it's actually shown on the patent over. Oh, I had no idea. Uh, blinds or curtains? Oh, uh, I think it depends on the blinds or the curtains. There's some really ugly curtains out there and there's some really awful blinds out there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, when you're making a cocktail, do you prefer uh, lemons or limes? Oh, I think it depends on the cocktail. Hmm. I I think uh, generally speaking, I like limes better than no. I like lemons. And I see, boy, it depends well, on the cocktail. The the sub question, I guess, is uh, what's your preferred cocktail? Uh, you know, just to unwind after a long day. Well, my pref- preferred alcoholic go to would actually just be a delicious wine. I, it's, mm. I'm a, I love wine and red and white. I like them both. It depends on the, the time of year. It's really hot. I'm going to have a Chardonnay before I'll have a, you know, a Zinfandel or something like that. But in terms of a cocktail, um, I lately I've really been enjoying uh, vodka martinis mm. and yeah, dirty vodka martinis. Shaken or stirred? Stirred. All right. It's a stronger, um, stronger drink. Awesome. <laughs> I have one last question for you, if that's all right. Um, sure. What uh, song uh, or musician or composition always puts a smile on your face? Oh, there's a whole bunch of them. There are classical singers like Marilyn Horn, for example. Every time I hear her, I'm smiling. There are. Um, there's a lot by Beethoven that puts a smile on my face. Beethoven was the first composer I fell in love with mm-hmm. and sort of the one that made me want to become a classical pianist. So much, much of Beethoven. Um, that's, a, that's a hard question. Because there's so many. I don't know if I, if I gave you enough. Now I'll be thinking about this all week and I won't be able to sleep tonight thinking about what other pieces can make me smile. What have you done to me, Chris? We can, we can <laughs> talk about it in a subsequent episode. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for taking the time to, to talk with me. Uh, I hope this is the first of a series of um, very interesting episodes. I'm sure this one will be for our, for our listeners. My pleasure. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Um, and I uh, hope you have the great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. All right. Well, uh, take it easy. For our next episode, Daniel and I will be joined by Barbara Day Turner, who is the director of the San Jose Chamber Orchestra, and uh, we hope that this will be the next in a series of um, very interesting podcasts for for you all. So please uh, tune in next time, and we look forward to seeing you again. Thanks a lot. Bye.